The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, now with two locations. The Tone Factory Recording Studios in Las Vegas, Moonshot.com T-Shirt Designs, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. It's The Fake Show with Jim Toffey. The band Chicago had already reached legendary status by the time guitarist Keith Howland joined them in the mid-90s. He heard about an audition and had maybe a day to prepare. We'll talk about that audition process and that famous green guitar that he uses to this day as I welcome Chicago lead guitarist Keith Howland from his home in Nashville. Keith, welcome, and we love seeing you here in Las Vegas. In fact, I think you guys were at the Venetian when this all this pandemic thing kind of actually broke wide open. Yeah, we were. As a matter of fact, it was uh, the end of our run there at the Venetian was our, our uh, fan club convention. So it was kind of um, it was kind of bizarre because it literally over that two week span we saw the attendance at the concert starting to go down, um, just because I think people were starting to get afraid to be in a enclosed space, you know, because the last few shows we did were like half houses, but they were sold out. So it's like half of the people just decided not to go. Right. It's very, very uh, spooky and surreal. Yeah, I remember thinking that the last two or three shows you guys did, I was thinking, wow, they played last night, huh? Because everyone kind of started to get into this panic mode. Oh, yeah, it was it was insane. Some of us, uh, some of us were staying at the MGM, and... Um, uh, they literally closed it down two days after um, we left town. You know, shut down all operations of all the MGM properties. We stayed right in there, right up to the wire, and we were doing, you know, meet and greets with lots of people. We did, uh, we we didn't shake hands with anybody, but right, you know, nobody was wearing masks yet. Nobody really knew what social distancing was. You know, none of that was happening yet. It all kind of came crashing down after that. The big performing arts center here, the Smith Center. There will be no shows. For- for the foreseeable future because the the future of theaters I mean I don't I guess they figure how can we survive if we've got maybe a half filled theater in terms of just if we did 50% capacity or even less than that so yeah and I, I would think if they they were going to go 50% capacity they'd have to raise ticket prices way up just to make it worthwhile and then is anybody going to want to pay that you know what I mean? For you guys who are such road dogs, and I've talked to, you know, a lot of the guys in the band over the years, and you, you always seem to be on the road and have been really since the late 60s. How is everybody doing with this, especially the guys who have been doing it since the late 60s? I mean, what is everybody doing right now? Um, believe it or not, we're making some music. Yeah. I've been working on some stuff with Robert, and uh, I played on a few different things that he's done, and uh, you know, all remotely, just sending files around. And you know, here in Tennessee, we're not quite as um, locked down as as some places, and we're kind of out in, in more of a rural part outside of Nashville. So, you know, we've been out to been able to go out to dinner and to the grocery stores, and I mean, you know, everybody's sort of uh, handling it in their own way. Um, it's very strange, though, because we had pretty significant amount of time off before we did the Vegas residency. We were we were all ready to get back out there and really, you know, hit, hit the road hard. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, it all stopped. And, you know, we don't know. The fall dates are still on the books. And whether that'll happen or not, 
who knows, the summer tour with uh, Rick Springfield got postponed till 2021. Now, that's interesting, too, because I don't know if Chicago has toured with Rick before, but I know that he was, wasn't he the first guy that you toured with as a musician? Yeah, I was kind of wondering, this is God's big joke on me. (laughs) (laughs) I was really excited to go out and have Rick opening for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. He was he was my first boss. Um, I say that in jest, of course. He's big star, big star. He's a great guy. It was going to be a fun tour, and I, I I know a lot of people were kind of kind of going Rick Springfield in Chicago. I don't. I'm not sure about that, but I knew as soon as we got out there and people saw him and and what he does. I think it would have worked well. Yeah, he puts on great shows. So for people who don't know, because I know you've been with the band, I think, for, what, 25 years now. Did you grow up in sort of a musical household? It was a musical household, but my my parents weren't really uh, musical. My mother was, you know, in the church choir, and she played the piano a little bit at home. But um, it really was my older brother who uh, started taking drum lessons, and, and then he he was four years older than me. I remember he brought um, Chicago 2 home because his drum instructor had given him basically the transcription of Danny's drum parts on that record and wanted him to learn them. And that was my <laughs> yeah. first exposure to Chicago other than hearing, you know, does anybody really know what time it is? Maybe on the radio. Yeah. And when I first heard that record at whatever age I was, six years old, something like that, seven, I decided to take up the guitar. Um, not Not directly because of that record, but that that record really, really kind of put me on my ear. It was like, wow, this is really different and, and really interesting. And um, and then that just sort of started it. So the the combination of my brother and I, we, we just, you know, we were always what we called the rec room, which was basically a converted garage, you know, just jamming together to records. I think it was an interview you did before where you said he was more of a, was into the Earth, Wind and Fire stuff and Weather Report, and you were into Van Halen and, and Ted Nugent and stuff like that. So it was kind of an interesting mix. Yeah, well, those, you know, the Van Halen and that stuff came a little bit later. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we kind of cut our teeth on some Beatles records. You know, we did the thing with the neighbors, came over, put the record player behind the drums, and, and, and we, we do concerts playing along with the best of a Beatles record. <laughs> sticking to it, you know. And then we started actually playing playing actual shows as, as a band. Um, and, and we were doing Carpenters and bad bad Leroy Brown and but as we as we got older you know I got into Kiss you know which I bought that album Kiss Alive because I saw saw the record cover you know in the record store and all the smoke and the makeup and the guitars and I went wow I don't know what that is but I gotta hear it hadn't even heard a note off of it of course I dressed up as Ace Freely for uh, Halloween that year of course Um, but yeah my brother was definitely trending more in starting with Chicago and then getting into Steely Dan and Earth, Wind, and Fire going deeper into because he became fixated on the drummer Steve Gadd, whom yeah. I introduced him to because before Gadd he was a Danny Seraphin freak and he still is and still was. My guitar instructor gave me an album called um, The Leprechaun by Chick Corea. Okay, and there's a song on there called Night Sprite, which is a real kind of up tempo, intense tune, and I and I. <clears throat> and interestingly enough, there's no guitar on that record. It's keyboard, bass, drums, and a sax. And I asked my guitar guy, I was like, why are you giving me an album with, with no guitar on it? And he said, listen to the way Chick phrases and solos. He wanted me, me to get outside of the guitar and listen to something else, and, and the way a, a different instrumentalist might approach soloing. 
So anyway, long story short, I was listening to that record, and I went to my brother, and I said, this drummer's really good, isn't he? He heard Night's Bright, and he bought every record Gad ever played on. So that brought in Steve Kahn records, and Gat Mangione, and like all these jazz records, all the Chick Corea stuff. And so I was hearing all that all the whilst playing all my rock records, you know. And we, and we both shared a, uh, a love of Toto, too. Oh, man. Steve Lukather. I, I think I saw a concert not too long ago. It was on YouTube. It was one that those guys played in, it was like Cleveland, Ohio or something in 1979. Oh, yeah. And just to see... Th- the solos that Lukather does, and I don't know if anyone in that audience was appreciating it so much because it was back in those days, audiences just kind of sat there. But oh my God, I mean that guy can play. He, he's definitely in my top three. Um, he may be my top one. You know, I've, I've said it in a number of interviews. Um, um, no disrespect to Terry Kath because he's top tier to me too. But right, influenced me the most were probably Jeff Beck. Steve Lukather and Eddie Van Halen. Terry was probably fourth. Because Terry's style was so unorthodox, it was difficult for me to kind of even emulate what he did, which is the irony of it, because, yeah. you know, for 25 years I've, I've been in that chair. Um, but I do think that what, what helped me actually get the gig was that I was steeped in the Steve Lukather style of things and the Michael Landau style of things, as well as... Terry's stuff. So when we played in the audition, when we played Hard Habit to Break and You're the Inspiration, I had all those 80s sounds and the, and the you know, because Landau and Luke, they played on those Foster records. When you went into the audition, did you know that you were going to be playing specific material? Did you have a chance to, to go over it a little bit first? Not really. No? <laughs> no, because I, I, I think I told, well, I don't know if I told you, but I've said in other interviews, the way it happened was um, my buddy Dave Friedman, who actually is very successful now uh, with Friedman Amplification, um, he had a shop down at Third Encore in L.A., which is a great uh, rehearsal studio where all big artists rehearse. I had just asked Dave, you know, if you ever hear of anybody looking for a guitar player or doing auditions down there, call me. So he called me one day and said, Chicago's auditioning guitar players right now. And so I threw all my gear in my car without without an invitation, and I drove down there. And um, I was actually earlier than the band. And what wound up happening was, one by one, I saw the guys going in. It kind of freaked me out, because it was like, you know, Robert, of course, was early. Uh-huh. And I was like, I can't talk to Robert Lamb. Jimmy and Lee walked by, and Walt, and uh, Champlin, and Tris. And, and yeah. I think Jason was the last guy. Right. I had met him once. So I jumped out of my car, and I ran over, and I said, Jason, Keith Allen, do you remember me? And he's like, not really. <laughs> I said, I, I was in that band with Sergio Gonzalez, drummer. He came in and said hi, and he he goes, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, man, I'd really like to audition. And Jason actually went in and lobbied for me, and and I think it was the next day I I auditioned. So I did have like one evening to to uh, woodshed a little bit, um, and I was given the you know the list of six tunes, which I think included Inspiration, Hard Habit, Saturday, 
does anybody really know what time it is? Make me smile 25 or 6 to 4. How are you even able to stand there in front of those guys and uh, without just totally freaking out? I mean, how do you do it? Do you just have to kind of get out of your own head? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's kind of like, um, you know, there's a, there's a certain survival mode you go into where you're going like, this is my shot. And so you sort of you sort of close down and, and focus the task at hand and try not to geek out too much on the fact that you're standing in a room with all those guys. Interestingly enough, and I don't know how many people know this about you, but you went to college and got a degree, but not in music. You were actually in, in my business in communication. So what was it that kind of flipped that switch where you said, I'm going to go out to L.A. and maybe give this a shot? Um, basically... All I did when I was in college was um, play in like three different bands. College in and of itself was just a means to an end. I got to get a degree. You know, uh, I switched my major from computer science because it was too hard to uh, business management and then to communication arts with concentration in radio and television um, because I thought I could actually do that. You know, I ran audio for the TV station and did things like that. And, you know, my buddy Lance Morrison and I, who were college roommates, um, moved back to Richmond, Virginia, and we started our own sound company, and we were running sound for bands, and we were playing gigs on the weekends. And one day we both kind of looked at each other and went, what what are we doing, you know, playing in cover bands and making 100 bucks a night to make sound for other bands? So uh, a good friend of ours had just moved out to L.A. and went to GIT, which is a music school out there for uh, guitar concentration. And and uh, we looked at each other and said, hey, why don't we go to L.A. and go to Musicians Institute and then see what happens? And that's pretty much how it happened. Loaded up the rider truck and, you know, headed west. As far as the fans are concerned, though, do you think that because there was a guitar player or two between you and Terry Kath, that it might have been a little smoother transition for you than, say, Donnie Dacus and the problems he had? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> I've said it before. I had a, I had a three-guy buffer, but, you know, yeah. and it's hard not to, because, you know, being a fan of the band, you know, when... When Donnie Dacus came into the band, I was very critical. Not that I didn't like his playing, and, I, and I've actually come to appreciate what he did with the band even more later on, but there's, there's always that thing of that loyalty to that original lineup. I mean, I can't imagine what it must have been like for Jason Sheff to step in at 20 three years old in the role of Peter Cetera. That's terrifying. Uh-huh. And, and so, you know, yeah, my transition, you know, I got I got my share of criticism when I first came. Oh, he, he doesn't run around like Dwayne. He doesn't wear spandex. He doesn't, he doesn't play as fast as Dwayne. He doesn't do as many whammy bar bends. He's boring. He, you know, this, yeah, I, I, I saw it all on social media and stuff, you know, and every guy went through that, you know, poor, you know, Donnie, definitely had had issues with uh with that although social media didn't exist so he probably probably didn't see it as much but they yeah. went from donnie to chris pinnock who was an amazing guitar player they yeah. just had him in the back on a you know a little uh, stage in the back and he didn't he didn't come out front or anything he just kind of stayed back there and played his butt off and then they went to Dwayne, who was like the opposite of what pinnock did and then then they came to me and i don't know I guess I'm kind of a in-between guy. 
<laughs> no, you look very comfortable up there. I've seen you with the band uh, many, many times. And it's, to me, you guys, the last, I don't know if it has anything to do with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, but the band just seems to have come alive again, for lack of a better song title. The stage, I don't know, the graphics, everything, the production, it's just so great to see you guys these last few years. Yeah, you know, actually that, um, the, you know, what you're talking about, the, the, the screens behind us with all the content that goes on during the show. Yeah. That kind of came about when we were doing the tour with Earth, Wind & Fire. It was almost, I think our manager, Peter Chivarelli, was the one that, that after we did that tour with Earth, Wind & Fire, he said, we, we can't go back to just having a, just a backdrop that says Chicago on it. And he said, we got we, we to gotta get video screens and, and do that because it just looks so good. So we, uh, you know, put our own thing together and, and, uh, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, I don't get to see it very often unless I turn around and face the yep. drummer. <laughs> I get to kind of <laughs> look at what's going on back there and I'm like, oh yeah, that looks good and turn back around and do my thing. Have you over the years, I mean, do you use, uh, systems, rigs that kind of emulate that 60s, 70s, 80s type sounds? Well, yeah, I mean, for years I was traveling with a, uh, I don't know if you know who Bob Bradshaw is, but Bob was the guy who built all the rigs to the stars. You know, Steve Lukather's rig, Michael Landau's rig, Eddie Van Halen's rig, you know, all these guys. It was, you know, big refrigerator-sized racks of gear where, where you could get almost any sound you wanted. And and that's, you know, what I had. Funny, funny story, when I first moved to L.A., I was going to get Bob Bradshaw to build me a rig. And so I had his address in North Hollywood. I was supposed to have a meeting with him at like four o'clock on a Monday afternoon. And I'm driving down Magnolia Boulevard looking for a big sign that says custom audio electronics, Bob Bradshaw. Right. And I'm going up and down and up and down and up and down Magnolia. And then I'm finally starting to freak out because it's like quarter after four and I'm going, I'm late to my appointment with Bob Bradshaw, <laughs> the Holy grail. And so finally I called him, Bob goes, he goes, you really think I would put a sign out front that says custom audio electronics so that everybody would know that all this gear is in here? <laughs> so, yeah, you had to go around to the back, and there was a little sign on the door in the back of this building with a you know metal door on it and stuff. And I always see you playing that green Stratocaster, I think it is, uh, playing that a lot, as a matter of fact. Have you had that since you joined the band? Yeah, I've had that since uh, 1989, a very yeah. early Tom Anderson. Um, I played it on the Rick Springfield tour. Yeah, that was the guitar I auditioned on. By the way, I'm talking to uh, Peter Pardini about his new book, Scrapbook, which looks great. And what did you think of, I'm assuming you saw his documentary now more than ever. Of course I did. Great. Yeah. Um, Peter's done a great job with everything that, he, that he's been involved in. That book is really um, an impressive piece of work. I, I didn't get a chance to really look at it for that long because I got it when we were in Vegas and it wound up in my wardrobe case and then we went home. So I kind of thumbed through it before a gig and just sort of looked. Um, but man, that's a that's a pretty. Uh, it's a hefty piece of work, yeah, isn't it? I was going to say that's that's that that'll break your coffee table. <laughs> yeah, it's not a coffee table book. It is a coffee table, yeah, right? Exactly. Well, Keith, I wish you the best of luck and, and good health. I, I only uh, wish we had some kind of future dates to talk about, but uh, maybe in the next uh, few months we'll get some good news. Uh, it was just a pleasure talking to you. I've talked to probably most of the other guys in the band. It was nice to uh, catch up with you. Yeah, good to talk to you, too. All right, buddy. Take care of yourself. Have a good one. Bye-bye.
And as Keith has said before, it's hard to believe that I'm not only chronologically the oldest guitar player to ever play with the band, but also the longest tenured. Of course, that really doesn't mean much when compared to the unbelievable body of work created by the late Terry Kath on the band's first 11 albums. And like every other performer, Chicago is not likely to be on the road again until next year. Well, that does it for this episode of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you back here next time. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.